I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare anyone? Hi, listeners. Elise here to remind you of all the ways you can support the podcast and the work that Courtney and I do. First up, we have a Patreon. Our Patreon patrons receive exclusive bonus content. Every month, we do a roundup of Shakespeare-related content we have found online. We also share Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes of the podcast. These look like extended versions of episodes you've heard here, collaborations with other Shakespeare podcasters, and Courtney and I doing reviews of Shakespeare-adjacent media, like TV shows, movies, and books that are inspired by or loosely based on Shakespeare and Shakespeare plays. Patreon patrons also receive snail mail from the podcast, and some levels even vote on future episodes of our podcast. If you are interested in checking out our Patreon or just the Shakespeare-related names we've given the tiers of support, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link is also in our episode description. After you've done that, please rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertising. Thank you so much for all of the support you give the podcast. Now, on to the episode. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Elise. How is it going? It's going pretty well. How are you? I'm also doing really well. I am gooped and gagged that we are already talking about revisiting both A Midsummer Night's Dream and Titus Andronicus. Yeah, that we're at another year-end kind of look back at what we've learned and reprocessing these plays through, you know, the journey we've been on this year. Yeah. Yeah. It is always shocking to me when we get to this point because time is such a bizarre entity to me, but I, I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited to put these two like officially to bed as well for a bit <laughs> for me. I am as well. Yeah. Well, for sure you with Midsummer because <laughs> Midsummer has been yeah. your life for what, a year and a half? Uh, yeah, I mean, the six months that we were working on Titus was the first six months in like a year and a half where I wasn't working on something to do with Midsummer. Mm -hmm. uh, let's just dive into Midsummer. Like, yeah, let's start at the very beginning of 2023. Yeah, Midsummer for me is, I know that play like almost word for word at this point in my career. So rereading it <laughs> is an exercise in patience. I kind of took away like one thing. So mm -hmm. I'd love to hear what you found again this time around. Yeah, I actually found that with this reread, I really enjoyed reading Midsummer, And I also kept thinking about how simple Midsummer is. Mm -hmm. 
and how much people complicate this play in performance. Yeah. Yeah. I, I started thinking a lot about Theseus and Hippolyta and mm. their relationship and how you build their relationship and what makes an interesting and successful pairing versus what's not as successful. Yeah. And I was thinking a lot about the line, Hippolyta, I wooed thee with my sword and won thy love doing the injuries, but I will wed thee in another way with pomp, with triumph and with reveling. And I was thinking about how much of that line makes me think of Brotheus and how fun and party animal, like frat guy Theseus maybe mm -hmm. should be because he literally says, I'm going to win you with pomp, with triumph and with reveling. And like, how much fun Theseus should be trying to have in this play mm -hmm. from top to bottom. Yes. And that's something that really stood out because I have a lot of trouble with Hippolyta and Theseus. Yeah, I think that generally like not enough time is spent on them. Some choices that are made in production kind of make those two characters extra difficult because like we don't have explicit language about how they, how angry and upset is she by the law of Athens or how they reconcile at the end it all kind of is very simple and i think that we productions when is what i mean when we say we tend to overcomplicate the relationship here mm -hmm. and they can both be a little i think simpler than people make them and i have thoughts means <laughs> people have heard enough about like my desire for especially theseus and hippolyta and the athenians and the fairies to be funnier productions don't for some reason and this yeah. is a comedy rereading it i was like yeah this is a comedy where is the comedy where is the co mm -hmm. <laughs> how do we make sure there's comedy with these characters yeah and how do we like keep that present how are these scenes funny yeah one other thing that came up in my reread was really thinking about this ancient privilege of athens the law that you had mentioned and like i mean they for lack of a better word suck the options are obey your father and marry Demetrius, die or go to a nunnery and live mm -hmm. a single life. And that question that you mentioned is, how do we continue the comedy throughout this play? When like, yeah. in reality, that's not a kind place for women, but how do we not root it in something that's what the National Theater did? Yes, exactly. How do we not make, to go back to the quote that you said of like, I wooed thee with my sword and one that I love doing the injury is very different language like i know we're gonna talk about titus later in both plays we have a ruler a ruler in greece and a ru ruler in rome who take prisoners of war as their brides mm -hmm. and hippolyta is depicted very differently at the top of this than tamara and in reality yes hippolyta is a prisoner of war and i'm not like undercutting what that right. is but for a shakespeare play that's a comedy yeah, looking at the language, I wooed thee with my sword and one thy doing the injuries. That doesn't necessarily translate to what Tamara went through, which was watching her son be sacrificed mm -hmm. and there being all this bloodshed around it. And it could also be seen as a good faith wooing mm -hmm. of, I mean, we're going to have fun. We're going to party. Yeah. Just because Athens has conquered the Amazons doesn't mean that we are subjugating them to more horrors and to go back to tamara that's done at the hands of the andronicae not Saturn saturninus yeah and her relationship with saturninus is so very often like 
coded as romantic and one of equals. And I think that like we try to make Theseus and Hippolyta a little too serious for a comedy. Yeah, of course, this is not to dismiss what being a prisoner of war could be, but also this is a Shakespeare comedy. Right. Maybe we should lighten up our approach to that relationship versus rooting it in that. Rooting it in our modern concepts of what being a prisoner of war is. Yeah. Because I think also like it's clear from Shakespeare's plays and what we know about how nobility was treated in um, the early modern era when they did have conflicts is very different than how modern warfare exists. Yeah, I think that one thing we could have gone into that we didn't that would really help to potentially better root this in something that's more palatable and fun, fun Mm -hmm. for a comedy is what was being a prisoner of war, what was conflict, military conflict. I want to say class plays a big role in the experience of war. Yeah. Maybe exploring that would have would open doors mm-hmm. to approaching this as a comedy. This, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Again, I, I I can't stress enough. Like, yeah, this is no, not to not... make light. This is just like we're just looking at like this is literally a comedy. I think also what we're saying is the way that Hippolyta is depicted in Act One, Scene One, is not as a prisoner of war as we understand prisoners of war today, and perhaps to portray her as such is making light of the experience of prisoners of war today in modern warfare. And we're not trying to, we're just trying to say, like, it's not the same thing and we should maybe stop doing that. Yeah. So my thing, and it kind of gets to, like, the lovers should be funny and they should be, they should be funny, they should be young, they should be, you know, uh, naive naive and impulsive and adventurous. One thing I want to see more of in productions is playing with age. Um, I think that this is a show that a lot of times gets very, like, young, sexy casts. Because we're dealing with, like, love and uh, sex. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, man, I'd love to see an Oberon and Titania in their 50s, 60s. Because they have all of this language about the length of their relationship and all these things that they've done to each other. Sure, fairies are timeless and they are immortal. But why does that mean that they can't have gray hair and wrinkles? Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. And they say, uh, we are the original, the parents. We are the parents. We are the originals. And that got me thinking about, like, just age in this play in general. And one thing that I landed on was that I'm really tired of the conceit of double casting Theseus Hippolyta with Oberon to Tanya and Phil Mm. Street Puck. Mm -hmm. And I think that, like, if we let them be separate, we could have a really interesting depiction of relationships and courtship at different ages so mm-hmm. if you had oberon and titania in the 50s 60s you could have thesis and hippolyta be 30s 40s and then you have the lovers in their you know probably late teens 20s, 20s yeah and having them be separate one of the issues that comes up in production when you have them doubled is if the fairies are funny as an actor to try to like build contrast in oberon titania puck to uh thesis hippolyta philostrate the decision is like, well, one is funny or sexy and sexy. And then the other yeah. ones are like buttoned up and serious. Mm-hmm. And if we remove that connection, then it frees up Theseus Hippolyta Philostrate to focus on being funny because they don't have to worry about being in direct contrast with these fairy characters that are also funny. I think that's an interesting point because I noticed in my read that in 3 2, 
Oberon calls himself a forester. And then in act four, Theseus says, go, one of you, find out the forester. Mm. And I'm like, that very much is like, go find the king Oberon. of the forest. Yeah. yeah. So it's very much language that indicates that they're two separate entities. Yeah. So yeah. that was my like one thought was I was just like, oh man, I, I want to stop seeing that. <laughs> it's just done so much. Yeah. That sounds exciting. So now let's move into our second play of the year that we really did just finish, uh, Titus. Mm -hmm. There were just some major things that stood out to me. One one should be engaged with a lot more in educational settings and in spaces where people are studying Shakespeare and Shakespearean performance because it is, one, long. Two, mm -hmm. <laughs> there's so much that happens. I was like, man, like, this would be a great scene study. This one should be done more because there's so many shifts of power and different you know motivations and relationships and status there's it's, it's all foundational so, it's so found it, like it's such a great foundational like theater scene that i was just like it's so good outside of that of like wow one one was picking up on some things that like i didn't quite pick up on in a read or like over the course of our working on this play i kind of like forgot rome and the goths and titus have been at war for 10 years before the start of this play mm -hmm. and conversely with theseus and hippolyta where we're like maybe don't let the war influence it that much it's like no a, a decade is a really long time to be at mm -hmm. war yeah and with titus it's what 21 sons by this point have been yeah. killed in battle yeah, and Titus has been a soldier for Rome long before 40. that. But this, yeah, for forty years. But this specific war took ten years, mm -hmm. and I just like that is something that like just didn't land in a lot of ways for me. Yeah, I was also like, oh yeah, Bassianus has language about how much he likes Lavinia. I also picked up on that. Okay. You and I—that was the first thing I was going to say. That he tells us early on, he thinks she's cute. Mm -hmm. but she's, she's a rich ornament yeah but she's the cutest thing in all of rome and mm -hmm. i was like oh i think both productions that we watched cut that line i was like oh yeah he likes her it's not just like surprise i'm taking yes. her and then that can inform that one scene that always always throws me for a loop which is when Bassianus and then Titus's sons yes. take Lavinia away and it feels very unclear, not rooted in a reality. That scene that's part of 1-1. <laughs> yeah, is that like, oh, Bassianus and these sons know how much Bassianus and Lavinia love each other. And maybe Titus is the one who's out of the loop here. Or Titus is trying so hard to align with Saturninus because he thinks that Saturninus should be emperor for some reason. Yeah. It also surprised me that Demetrius is the first goth to speak of revenge. I also wrote that down. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I also picked up on, and this is, you know, coming out of our conversations with Carson and Mia, but I picked up on that the first, like, guest, Saturninus says that Lavinia is his guest. Hmm. And I was like, oh, Oh, that's interesting. I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, it's actually the only use of the word guest in the entire play. 
Saturninus at the end of one one, he says, Lavinia, though you left me like a churl, I found a friend, and sure as death, I swore I would not part a bachelor from the priest. Come, if the emperor's court can feast two brides, you are my guest, Lavinia, and your friends. This day shall be a love day, Tamara. That's such an inversion. Lavinia is a guest, and Lavinia is who one of the first acts against the Andronicae is committed against. I mean, and Bassianus is only killed mm -hmm. so that Demetrius and Chiron can ravish Lavinia. Yeah. So, yeah, Lavinia and your friends. Aaron also has one of the first instances, instances of uh, sort of like racially coded language, which, as we talked about with me, have these sort of like negative connotations to blackness of like to use Midsummer Night's Dream, who would not exchange a raven for a dove is like a very common like that one of, like popped out to me with Midsummer as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But Aaron inverts it to me and says that envy is pale and puts a negative connotation on paleness, on whiteness. And that is very interesting, as we've not had anyone actually comment on Aaron's blackness yet. Those would be really excellent moments to do a close reading of and mm -hmm. see what's there. Uh, the one other thing that I was really thinking a lot about, and I have been thinking about this since the beginning of Titus, is burial rites and what burial rites are in early modern England and oh. what that meant to the early modern people. Because there's such an emphasis on the sons, the burials. Three different. Yeah, yeah, Mucius is not allowed to be buried because he betrayed Titus. And then at the end, Lavinia and Titus get the proper burial. Tamara is left to be um, feasted on by the birds. Yeah. And then Aaron has Aaron that is... like reverse lynching that Mia talked about. Yeah. So I've been thinking a lot about what is burial rites? What does it mean? What did it look like? to the people, to Shakespeare's audience. Because mm -hmm. that, that is like such a key piece, like hospitality in this mm -hmm. play, the social implications of burial rites and who gets what is also, mm -hmm. I think, a layer that doesn't exactly translate for a modern reader or modern audience as well. Mm -hmm. It's much like Ophelia's burial and like the Christian burial. and Yeah, that super fascinating well that is the end of our year with a midsummer night's dream and titus andronicus i really at the end of this just i want to wrap up and say i hope people take all of this work and these thoughts and these questions and examine it further and put on some really good productions that call into question some of these things that we've thought about that our guests have brought to our attention i mean i would love to see more um thoroughly examined productions mm -hmm. both of these yeah yeah not to shame there were great things from the wrap-ups that we watched but there's so much more investigating to do mm -hmm. yeah and that's it that's a really good note to end it on thank you for listening i'm courtney smith and i'm elise sharp this is shakespeare anyone thank you so much for listening to shakespeare anyone Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash ShakespeareAnyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. 
The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's Shakespeare any and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Julius Caesar, Act 3, Scene 1, spoken by Mark Anthony. Cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. <laughs>